as you know, we're in a series on revival. The name of this series on revival is taken from the meaning of the Hebrew word revive, which simply means to live again. And the English word, which comes from Latin, again, means simply to live again. Re, again, vive, live. To live again. So revival is when Christians start living again. Obviously, he's using a metaphorical nuance there because if somebody is alive in Christ, they can never become dead in Christ. I should hear somebody say something about that. We are eternally secure in Christ. You can never become unsaved if you are saved. You are secure. You can't become dead in Christ because those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. But... As I talked about last week, we can get in a spiritual coma of sorts, right? Where we're all but dead. And revival is when a person is on the gurney, they realize it, they rip off the uh, hospital gown, they put on some street clothes, they pull out all the life support tubes, they get off the gurney, they rise up, and they re-engage walking with God. That's revival on an individual level. Now, the result of, let me, let me put it this way, when that happens to a lot of people in a given locale, which is one of the definitions of revival, a lot of people being biblically revived in one place, when that happens in a given locale, that's the result of God coming down. Isaiah 64 verse 1, I wish you would pray this text over the church. It's a historic revival text. I can't wait to get to it. Where, where the writer Isaiah says, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens, like rip the heavens apart and come down. Come down, O oh Lord. He's talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And man alive, I can't wait to get to the topic of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is going to be outside the box for some. It is definitely very exciting, and when God sovereignly chooses to pour out his spirit, it is, the history of the church shows this, unstoppable. I can't wait to get to that. But first things first. And as exciting as it would be to begin preaching about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to table that for several weeks because we actually need to get back to some prerequisites for God pouring out His Spirit. Now, it's been about five weeks since I kicked off this message, but does anybody remember why this is up here? Anybody remember it all? Say again. Yeah, we've got to dig out that well, exactly. In the opening message, I, I, I talked about six things revival is not, but it is. And I end it by saying we've got to avoid two ditches. The one ditch is the ditch of manipulation, kind of trying to manufacture man-made revival, which may be a lot of emotion, but nobody's life has changed and no lost or reached out of that. So we want to avoid the ditch of manipulation, but we also want to avoid the ditch of passivity. We can't just be passive and say, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Do you remember that in the kickoff message talking about that? That unquestionably only God can send revival in its fullest sense, but undeniably every Christian here bears a responsibility to pursue it. So I asked all of us, do you want to take up a shovel and start digging? Do you want revival? I wonder how many people have actually entertained that question in these weeks. And if you haven't, maybe it's because you really need revival. And maybe out of this message you will think about that. Now I went to, as, as Brian just referenced, Genesis 26. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached an incredible series on revival. And in it he goes in the fourth message and several messages in the beginning to Genesis 26. Abraham dug a well so they could get fresh water. 
But the Philistines came and they filled it in with all kind of dirt and debris and refuse and all the rest. And so by the time Isaac, his son, comes along, in order to get water out of the well, he had to dig all that rubbish out so that he could get back to the water. Lloyd-Jones, this is a little bit of a longer quote, and uh, people who talk about homiletics or preaching say you never read a long quote in a sermon introduction. Well, I'm throwing that out the window because I think this is a really good quote. So stay with me, all right? He says, we've been considering how the immediate task of the church, if she is genuinely and truly concerned about revival, is to get rid of this rubbish and this earth which the Philistines poured into the wells and which have choked up the supply of water. The way to revival is not just to say, excuse me, uh, I went back to seventh grade for a second, my voice just cracked. The way to revival is not just to say, let's pray about it. Of course we must pray. And I hope to emphasize that much and to emphasize it strongly. But what I am saying is that there is something we must do before we pray. There are certain preliminary conditions attached to prayer. To go on our knees and to utter words is not of necessity prayer. The Bible from beginning to end makes it perfectly plain and clear that God can only be approached in certain ways and under certain conditions. And if we do not observe these conditions, we are not praying and there will be no value in those exercises. Let me put it like this. The need we say is the need of an outpouring of the Spirit of God. Isaiah 64 and verse 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But clearly, by definition, the Spirit of God can only be outpoured on and can only honor his own truth. The Holy Spirit cannot honor a lie. He cannot honor a negation or refusal of the truth. The Spirit who was poured out in revival is the same as the one who led these people to write these sacred books of the Bible. We need to dig and get back to some reality so that the water of life can flow. And the first reality we need to dig back down to is the absolute authority of Scripture. The tagline would go like this. Hopefully you can walk away with this, that we need to get back to the book. Get back to the book. What's, this, what's the big idea of this message? Get back to the book. Now, Turn to 2 Chronicles 34, the scripture that Pastor Charles read as he opened up the service. And we're going to look at one of the great revivals of the Old Testament under an awesome, awesome eight-year-old. That's when he took the throne, named Josiah. I mean, I've been so impacted by Josiah that if the Lord miraculously gave our family another child and he was a boy, we, I would want to, we'd have to vote on it, name him Josiah. Man, Josiah, I'm so impressed by Josiah. But before we get into Josiah's life, I want us to be clear on something, how you apply the Old Testament today. Do not draw the line from Old Testament Israel to America, okay? You have to understand the difference between the Old Covenant in which God was dealing with a specific people that was a nation— a literal nation, to now in the new covenant, his people are people from every nation in a spiritual entity called the body of Christ. And if you do not understand that, what happens is Christians or pseudo-Christians and everything in between sometimes try to um, foist upon people a kind of Christian nationalism. And let's be clear, there are right-wing versions of that and there are progressive versions of that and they both don't end well. So what we do is we don't draw the line from Old Testament Israel to America. We draw, we draw the line from the Old Testament people of God, Israel, to the New Testament people of God, the church. That's how you rightly divide this word. And what, we, what we're going to see is very clearly the Old Testament people of God, Israel, were having some dark days. And so it is with the New Testament people of God, the church. I think there's some dark days in the church. And I think there's some dark days in Christian institutions. And if the church is going to be all that God intends her to be in the world, 
The church is going to have to get the world out of her and the word more into her. In other words, we have to experience reviving so that we can be used of God then to see viving or coming to life for the first time in a, in, in, in a resurrection to Christ kind of way out there. Does that make sense? So that's just kind of the context. Now, the backdrop is this. In 922, this massive entity called Israel, boom, was cleaved right in two and separated into two kingdoms. In fulfillment of God's warning that he said, if you all keep trifling with the gods of the nations and, and, and practice all this adultery, I'm going to split you up. And that's exactly what happens. In 922, the nation divides into two. You have the northern kingdom called Israel, and then the southern kingdom is called Judah after the tribe of Judah. 300 years later, in 641, eight-year-old Josiah, at the green young age of eight years old, Josiah assumes the throne of the southern kingdom, Judah, when his father dies. Now, I want to tell you briefly, still by way of introduction, about his dad and granddad. Old pops and old grandpops they were not just not good kings. They were not good men. They were terrible people. Let me tell you about Grandpa Manasseh. I slide back to 2 Chronicles 33. This is what it says about Manasseh. Verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Let, let me cut to the chase. Grandpa dove headlong into apostasy. I mean, sordid stuff. And because we got the kids with us, I can't give you the detail I would otherwise about the kind of stuff that they dove into. But he, he, he led the nation in the worship of uh, Asherah and Baal, the Canaanite gods. He led the nation in uh, the worship of stars. He, they would hold... They would hold in the high places orgies where incomprehensible sexual immorality would, would go down. They sacrificed babies at the altar and temple of Molech, the Planned Parenthood of that day. In fact, he very likely sacrificed his oldest son. That's just a sampling of 55 years of sordid stuff. He dies, his son Amnon then assumes the throne of the southern kingdom. And unfortunately, in this case, the apple did not fall far from the tree. But he gets cut off at just two years into his, his, his reign because you do dirty and sometimes you're going to get done dirty. His servants kill him. And so suddenly, again, at the green, young age of eight years old, guess who was thrust into the throne of the kingdom of Judah? Little old eight-year-old Josiah. And I want to pick up in chapter 34, verse 3. It says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, so now he's 16, he began to seek the God of David, his father, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and ashram and the carved and metal images. In other words, when he was eight years old and playing Legos, he was also doing some deep thinking. Because at 16, he begins thinking about the Lord and pursuing the Lord. Apparently, this is no short-lived fleeting conviction because at age 20, he literally starts cleansing the land of idols, of the high places, of the worship of the false gods. He, 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 re, he rebuilds the temple. He restores relationship. There's a beautiful reform going on there, right? Now, in just a moment, we're going to go to the heart of the text, the heart of the big idea we need to get back to the book. But let me put the brakes on and just make three preliminary exhortations to you based on what we've seen so far in the, th in, in the reign of this young awesome king. Number one, young people here, I don't know what young would be, single digit age, maybe, maybe teenagers even, maybe young adults. I'm, I'm an old man here, 52. There's maybe a few older, but not many older, and I just made eye contact with them, okay? Um, we have a lot of young people. 
I want to tell you, based on the life of Josiah, young people, don't think that you can't have a radical impact on other people, including older people. Remember, 8, 16, age 20, all this goes down, and he's going to impact the whole nation. So Paul says to Timothy, and now he says that to all of us, let no man despise you for your youth. In other words, let no one say, well, that person could be serious about the things of God. That person couldn't be godly. That person could be whatever because they're just a youth. No. He says, let no one despise you for, you, for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in virtue, and faith. I tell you what, there is revival happening when younger people start taking the things of God seriously. Because sometimes you don't really start taking God seriously until you go through a few things in life. You know, suffering drives you to seriousness sometimes. But what a beautiful work of God it is when young people start taking God seriously. That's revival. Number two, I would say this on the basis of the life of of Josiah, that a tough upbringing does not, you're not bound to a, a tough upbringing. You're not bound to a tough upbringing. If there's anyone who could ever say, well, my life can't amount to anything. I mean, you know who my grandpa was, you know, Manasseh. And and my father himself, Amnon, these were some terrible men. If there's ever somebody who could have played the victim, it could have been him. And no doubt, no doubt, our experience, our background does does have an impact on us, right? we, We would say that. We know that from our own lives. But our background does not have to enslave us. And if you don't believe that, you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel begins making all things new in our life. And Josiah, having a rotten father and a rotten grandfather at some point, said, no, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm a victor. And he led the nation in a positive way. The third thing I would say is this, is obeying what you know to do now often leads to God doing more later. Does that make sense? Obeying what you know to do right now often leads to God doing more later. He didn't know all that what God was going to do. All he knew was God started working in his heart and he leaned into what God was doing. And so what began as just a simple reformation movement in his own heart turns into a full-blown revival of sorts to the whole nation. It's a beautiful thing. I just wonder, I wonder how often we don't see God do that thing later in life because we're not obeying what we know to do right now. Don't abuse the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign. He declares the end from the beginning. In ancient times, things are not yet done. Yes, but... We are not puppets. We take real actions that have real results for good or for bad. And because he responded to that small thing, which is actually a pretty big thing, God did even more massive thing. Now, those just were points by way of introduction, but we will dive into this very quickly now. We're going to turn to the text, and what we're going to see is that the revival that starts in this man's heart spreads to the whole nation. Because I just read about what happened in verse 3, but if you were to slip to the very end of the chapter, the very last phrase, you could say verse 33b, this is what it says about, about Israel, or about Judah specifically. All his days they, the people of Judah, did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. This revival spread to all people, and by the way, a people who were steeped into idolatry. Why did that happen? What we're going to see is that revival happened because they got back to the... I'm not teaching and preaching very well this morning. They got back to the what? They got back to the what? They got back to the book. So here's, here's what's going down. Let me, let, let me summarize. They're cleaning out the temple. Because God is again given, doing a work of reform through him into the nation. They're cleaning out the temple, cleaning things up, restoring worship, all this and that. When, hey, listen, have you ever been cleaning out an attic or a garage and rediscover something very valuable that you actually forgot you had? 
Most people have done, you live any length of time, you have any uh, house, you will store something away, forgot that you had it, and then you will rediscover it. Well, while they're cleaning out the temple, do you know what they discover? The law of God and the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate writer of this book, wants to really highlight that reality because six times in verses 14 through 18, he talks about the book of the law. Since Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law, verse 14, he actually tells Shaphan the king's secretary, I have found the book of the law. And then the text says, Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, then Shaphan brought the book, that's the fourth reference to the king. Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, he says in verse 18, and Shaphan read it before the king six times. He says the book of the law, the book of the law, the book of the law. He wants us to know they discovered the book of the law, and that's a really big thing. Hilkiah, the priest, found it, gave it to his secretary, his right-hand man, and he reads it to him. Now, I want you to see what Josiah does in verses 19 through 21. Remember, this is the guy who's already uh, had done some repentance, right? This is a guy who's already done some consecration, saying, oh, God, work in us, change us. Look at verses 19 through 21. And when the king heard the words of the law, what did he do with his clothes? Now, what is that all about, tearing his clothes? Did he all of a sudden get hot? What's going on there? He's mourning. He's lamenting. He's repenting. He's broken. He's sorrowful. So number one, he tears his clothes. And then number two, drop down to verse 21, middle part of the verse, he realizes the wrath of God is on the nation. He says, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us. He understands the wrath of God is on them. And and by the way, you read about revivals, and one of the things that you quickly realize is that when God begins to do a reviving work in people, the truth of the wrath of God Now, you're not going to find those on your coffee cups, Wrath of God verses, and your Christian calendars, and your oftentimes, not all the time, cheesy little Christian t-shirts. You're not going to find that. But when revival begins to hit a people, they get real about the wrath of God. Now, we should know that from the book of Romans, right? Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of truth, of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why does Paul say the wrath of God is being revealed? Why? Because people were exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. He's talking about idolatry. Does anybody else remember in Romans 1 what he then does? What what the wrath of God being poured out actually looks like? Does anybody remember that verse? Again, this is not a coffee cup or Christian calendar verse. But he says, because you're doing this, I am pouring out the wrath of God. Here's what the wrath of God is. God giving people over to unnatural lust. Women working with women, that which is unseemly. Men working with men, which is unseemly. That's the old version. One of the signs that the wrath of God is being poured out is when he gives people over to sin. And according to this scripture, this particular sin. Now remember, you do not draw the line from the church, from Old Testament Israel to the nation. The world going to be the world, Right? But you you draw it to the church. And what you have is you have massive denominations in America who once preached the gospel, who now affirm all kinds of sexuality and actually ordain people all kinds of sexuality. Now, I'm I'm not beating up the world. Don't hear me doing that. I'm saying that's an example, is it not, of the wrath of God being poured out upon the professing people of God. And it's actually very destructive to the nation because if there's anybody that's supposed to be a light and a beacon of truth, who is it supposed to be? The church. So that, that's probably a topic we need to dig back down to. The wrath of God is recognized in revival. Now, this is fascinating. 
God through, and I won't read this text for the sake of time, God through the prophetess Hilda or Hulda tells Josiah, because he's broken and lamenting, and because he understands the wrath of God is on them because of the sin, he's, God's giving them over to all that, that idolatry. She says to him, God is going to get you out of here before the fullness of, of God's wrath drop on you. In other words, you're not going to see all that I'm going to do by way of wrath. Now, this, this is really fascinating. This tells you about the character of Josiah. Josiah, Josiah doesn't do this. He doesn't say, well, I'm good. <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, I'm a king, so I'm going to go to the pool and have a pina colada. And maybe he did that because everybody needs rest, right? But he didn't rest on his laurels and say, well, I'm good. Forget them. No, this is what Josiah does. We did not read this text before. I will read it now. Verse 29. This is what Josiah does. Then the king, that's Josiah, sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, both great and small. And he read their, in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Basically, he's saying to the whole nation, we have a devotional time. And we're going to read the book of the law. It was probably Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy. And then he says, the king stood in the place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. That's some revival happening. Do you see that? This was a land steeped in idolatry. Look what's going down. And then it says, then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of their God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. And by the way, the first step to actually getting rid of abominations and starting calling abominations for what they are, abominations, right? That's hard. That's what he's doing. So what we see is this man, and oh, I, let, me, let me hit this. We're not going to read chapter 35, but chapter 35 is one big holy party. For years and years, they had, did not practice the Passover, or if they did, they did it in like, you know, culturized, nambi, you know, weak, not real, truthful kind of way, a distorted, perverted way. He restores uh, Passover, and you just read that next chapter, it's beautiful. There's thousands and thousands of sacrifices in the Old Testament sacrificial system. There's all kinds of singing, praise bands here and there. It's a beautiful chapter. And then, well, let me, let me stop here, because I want to get the application. They got back to the book, and, and I actually came up with an acronym. It, it just happened. There are three things that happen. R, they repented, right? O, obedience became a virtue and a value. That's what happens in revival. Obedience is no longer seen as optional. That's what Pastor Cleet's hitting next week. And then W, there's worship. Here's the acronym, row. Does that make sense? A row, you're rowing. If you want to row towards revival, there has to be repentance, there has to be obedience. There needs to be worship. We row toward revival, and that is fueled by getting back to the book. That's what Josiah, this young godly king, does. Now, later he's killed in combat, and the whole nation, chapter, the end of chapter 35, tells us lamented his death. He was a well-loved king. So the, the point is plain as we turn to application. For revival to happen... We need to get this out and dig back down to the authority of Scripture. We need to clean out the debris of the Philistines who have gotten away into submitting to the authority of Scripture. And you might say, well, what do you mean get back to the authority of Scripture? You know, we're a Bible-believing church. Or I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And I would just say to us, are we so sure? And I would say to you, are you so sure? And then I would pose a couple of questions. Is it possible that we could theoretically say, I believe in the authority of God's Word, but functionally not believe it's all that sufficient? We, we love to talk about a guy like, you know, Joel Osteen, who holds up his, the Bible, and there's that uh, little quote they, they quote, and it's not a bad quote, really. 
But he doesn't exactly always quite preach from the Bible, right? Even though they theoretically confess. And I'm just asking, is it possible to on paper say, oh, I believe the Bible is the word of God, but functionally act as if it's not enough? Then second of all, I would ask this. Is it possible that instead of allowing the Bible to expose our blind spots, and we, have, we all have them, that's just, we're blind to them, that's why they're blind spots. Is it possible that instead of allowing this book to expose our blind spots, we actually use it to hide our blind spots? Even justify our blind spots? Or can I cut to the chase, justify our sin? Because I'm sure his old grandpa and dad, wicked Manasseh and Amnon, I'm sure they had some coffee cup and Christian calendar scriptures around. I'm sure they quoted a little scripture here and there. It's, it's almost like a church who just affirms everything, and they have some verse to justify that out of context. Well, this is what it means to love or, or whatever, right? And so what happens in revival are two powerful dynamics that just might, what happens, I should say this, when people get back to the book, there are two sparks that are lit that in God's grace will feel something much bigger. Can I tell you about those two sparks? The first spark is this. When people get back to the book, the church is rescued from cultural captivity. The church is rescued from cultural captivity. A couple of weeks ago, when Pastor Cleet preached, he reminded us of a very sad and tragic dynamic in American history. Namely this, that a sizable or at least an influential group of people thought slavery was just a fine thing, right? People across the world at that day believed it was, and sadly, people in a wide part of the world still practice slavery and believe it's okay. But in our story of our country, it's hard to say between 5 and 25% of people own slaves. Actually, a, a, a broad section of, of different kinds of people. That, that, that's, that's another discussion sometime. But there was a lot, there was at least 5 to 25% of people owned slavery. And then also a sizable quotient of people who were said, oh, it's okay. Now, the tragic part is this. There was a quotient of people who confessed Christ, who said slavery was just fine. And do you know that they twisted scripture to justify that? I did a series on this a while, actually a long time ago, when we launched the church called One, One Church, One People, One Gospel. And I really went through in detail with a, with a fine-tooth uh, fine comb all the ways the Bible was manipulated to justify slavery. But two of the highlights would be, or lowlights, would be Genesis 4.15, the so-called Mark of Cain, as well as Genesis 9.25, the curse of Ham. See, they were in cultural captivity, were they not? And what happened is, thankfully, there were a group of people, some Christians included, said, no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. They were called abolitionists. Now, how do you think these abolitionists were received by people? How do you think they were received? What do you think? Outcast, come on. Why are you trying to disturb the societal norm? We, we all think it's okay. You're nothing but fear mongers and hate mongers. Probably called them phobic of something, right? Probably maligned them, probably slandered them, right? Get with the times. And what happened? Here's the dynamic. Cultural captivity is when you look at this book, Scripture, through the lens of culture. To be rescued from cultural captivity, you have to flip the script. You've got to put culture out there, and then you've got to look at it through the lens of Scripture. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? Because it's extra quiet today. Maybe it's just the AC getting out of the hot and heat and humidity. Now, I want to ask you this. 
I want you to think about the values and the positions and practices that a sizable and influential group of people in society at large hold that perhaps has invaded the church. Often in the name of compassion, but it's the farthest thing from it. I'm not going to answer that for you. Because then, then somebody might just go sideways and they're thinking about what, what, what I'm sharing. But can you, th- I'm just asking you, can you think of any values and practices and positions that culture embraces that is counter to the word of God and the will of God that has made its way into the church over the last couple of generations? Can you think of any? Matter of fact, if you can't think of any, would you raise your hand? That you ain't thinking then. I'm serious, because there, 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 there has, there has, and maybe you're just being quiet, so I'll keep being loud, all right? <laughs> and I, I just want to make this point. Just as some embraced slavery in the past because they were looking at Scripture through a cultural lens, could it be today people are likewise, in the name of Christ, embracing ungodly things because they're looking at Scripture through the lens of culture. Are you experiencing any cultural captivity in any area? What what comes first for you? Culture or Scripture? Are you really a person of the book? I want to ask you that. Really a person of the book. When something is said that is according to the truth of God and that makes you upset, you might be experiencing at least a quotient of cultural captivity. Or if you get hung up on, and and, and nothing is beyond a fair and gracious criticism, but if you get hung up on, you know, where, how it was said or the tone or some other thing, that's all, that's all fair. But is that a bigger thing than the truth that was said? There might be some cultural captivity going on. Listen to this quote by a woman named Elizabeth Rundle Charles, 1850-something. She said, If I profess with loudest and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages... There is the loyalty of the soldier proved. Do you see what they're saying? Like, you, I believe the Bible will be the Bible. Okay, are you willing to say what it says in areas where it's being challenged in the body of Christ? Just one, I, that, that's a great quote she had, and she was speaking kind of prophetically, wasn't she, 150 years ago? We must stand against the lies of culture invading the church that kill, rob, steal, and destroy, and we do that by getting back to the book. We must hold to the faith once delivered to the saints, right? That's what Jude says. That is, how we're made right with God and how it is we walk that out. And we protect this good news, the gospel, and we protect this body of truth because it is the only thing that can save a sinner, change a sinner, and satisfy a sinner. So we do it out of the most sincere love for people who need to meet the God of all grace, which is ultimately why we're still here, right? Paul says to Timothy, I can just imagine this paternal tone to this young disciple. He says, Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who has been given to you, guard the deposit of faith. That's some militant language there, isn't it? By the Holy Spirit who's been given given to us, guard the good deposit of faith given to you. And as I said in the introduction, if if, if the church is going to be all that God intends her to be in the world, then we're going to get the world out of the church and the word back into the church so that we can experience reviving that will then turn into vibing. Now, that's one spark. The second spark is this. Getting back to the book revives the individual Christian. It revives the Christian. I want to put it negatively first. One pastor put it this way. If you're not interested in being revived, if you have no interest in being transformed, 
If you don't want to grow spiritually, and if you don't want direction or purpose in your life, then don't read the Bible. <laughs> but now I want to put it positively. I told you in, in, in my wilderness wanderings how Ephesians 6 has been so good to me. God has been so good to me to bring me to Ephesians 6, and I've been, yeah, it's, it, that's been really, really helpful for me. But also Psalm 119. I didn't mention that last week. I thought about doing a message on Psalm 119, but I'm going to bring out some of it here. I've been in Psalm 119 as well as Ephesians 6. And what you find in Psalm 119 is basically a man's personal journal on how the Word of God revived him in his wilderness wanderings. Check out how Psalm 119 begins. Verses 9 through 11, toward the beginning, the psalmist says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Anybody want to know that? By guarding it according to your word. And then he goes on to say, with my whole heart I am seeking you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. There's emotion there. And then he says, verse 11, I am storing up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's beautiful, isn't it? Like one of the ways, you, you, you really can't say you're seeking God if you're not seeking to store his word in your heart. That's one of the ways we seek God. We store up his word in our heart. Then he'll talk about his suffering. And let's be honest, suffering is one of those, pla one of those places we are particularly vulnerable to falling into a, spiritual, a deep spiritual coma, right? It's really, because you're just kind of in limbo. You're questioning things about God. You're questioning things about life. You're questioning things about all kinds of things. And so you're very susceptible to a spiritual coma and suffering. He was. So he says in verse 28, and I, I, I've identified with this verse, my soul, he says, melts away for sorrow. You ever been there? And then he says, strengthen me according to your word. He's starting to look in God's direction now. A couple verses later, verse 50, he says this. He says, um, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give life. He's starting to be revived. That's your promises. He's putting up that shield of faith, all these darts coming at you. We talked about that last week. You soak that shield in the water of the word. Foom, 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 foom. All these flaming darts coming at you, and you stop them because his promises give life. And then he can see, oh, wow. Actually, this affliction has drawn me closer to you now. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In fact, he'll even up the ante on that a few verses later. He will say, it was good for me. I, just, I don't know if I can say this all the time. It was good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And then he says this, surely this is revival happening in a man's heart. He says, if I had not delighted in your word, I would have perished in my affliction. See, when you are in difficulty, what you choose to delight in always determine your ultimate direction. And this man is being revived. So much so that he gives us one of the towering statements of Scripture. He's not trying to give us high doctrine. He's just confessing how the Word has impacted him. But he says, forever, O oh Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Do you believe that? That's, that, 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 that's a prerequisite to revival. He actually comes to value the Word of God more than anything. It stops collecting dust. He says, your Word is better than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. You be able to say that? Then he goes on to say, your word is actually what gives me satisfaction. As honey is to my mouth, your word is sweet to my taste. And then he says, it's what gets me out of darkness. It's what gets, it's, it's what gets people out of darkness. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and no light unto my path. You can walk in darkness or you can turn the light on and walk by the light of the word. I'm just trying to say, and I'm going to cut out of the verses because it is 12.07 and my clock watches two minutes slow, so 12.09. You learned that about your clocks, right? So it defeats the purpose. Um, this man experienced revival, right? And I, I just think what happened to him can happen to you and to you and to you and to you. And I just think if it happens to a lot of yous or us, I wonder if God might spark something just a little bit bigger. Yeah. 
and set us on fire. Getting us, getting back to the book rescues the church from cultural captivity and it revives the individual Christian. And in doing so, it might just spark something bigger. That's what happened in Josiah's time, right? He, they read the book and they obeyed the book and they applied the book and they found hope in the book. We need to get back to the book. All of us to some extent. I'm not going to bore you with stats about the Bible, but only one of six Christians even tries to read the Bible every day. And some of that's just perfunctory, check the box, etc. Which is really crazy given all the resources we have for the Bible, right? I mean, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere now. Maybe it's on that little technological box that you've been looking at this morning. Huh? And here's the thing. Christians do read a lot of books. Christians do read a lot of blogs. Um, and a lot of, about a lot of issues based on the Bible. That's not bad. I quoted from a book for crying out loud. But my fear is Christians typically go to books that they know take their position. Instead of going to Scripture and seeing if their position is right or wrong. We all, should, we all should be willing to have our position changed, right? Is that right? You stop growing when you're no, no longer willing for your position to be changed or refined. But the changing and refining is the Word of God. And it's like Jen Wilkins said, mostly Christians are curators of other people's opinions that already matches their opinions rather than diving into the supreme counsel of the Word of God for yourself. We believe as Protestants in the perspicuity of, Christi of, of the Scripture, which means every believer can understand the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Some things, as Peter said, are harder to understand than others, right? But the Bible is for everyone. What if we took Matthew 4, 4 seriously? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What if as frequently as water and food pass through your lips, the Word of God entered through your eyes or your ears? What if we had the same amount of touch points there? What do you think would happen? <laughs> Jeremiah said, I found your Word and I ate it, and it became a joy and the delight of my heart. Man, that, 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 that's revival. Now, I'm, I'm going I'm, I I'm to close with this. Remember in verse 29, one last look at the text. It says, where is it? Um, and the king stood his place to walk in. Verse 32, my apology. It says, then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it, join in this covenant. Did that catch you by any chance? that he made them do it. That stuck out. Now, certainly he used his influence to get other people to follow the path he was taking of committing to the Word of God. But the question is, were their hearts actually changed in a wide-scale way? Every parent knows, every Christian who's trying to impact people with the gospel Every Christian is just honest with themselves. No, we got no power to change somebody's heart, right? We can do like external behavior modification and you can press people on stuff people legalistically, but we can't change a heart. So the question is, were their hearts actually changed? And the answer would be some of them, yes. Others, clearly, no. Some of them followed not because their heart was changed, because it was commanded. And Jehoiakim, the next king, makes that very clear because he goes right back to where the other kings went. And for their idolatry, God sends Babylon to destroy Judah, destroy the temple, and haul them off into captivity. King Josiah was able to enforce the law, but he was not able to change people's hearts. He was able to avert God's wrath for a couple of years before he died, but he was not able to avert God's wrath forever. And Jeremiah tells us, I don't have time, he says, oh, how you hoard around, he says. Very strong language he uses. He says, I thought 
that when you saw how I disciplined Israel, you wouldn't go sleeping around in those high places, but you did too. And he says, it was all a pretense. We need a king who can not only cleanse a physical temple, we need a king who can cleanse this temple, who can change this heart. Josiah tore his clothes because the law was read. Jesus had his flesh torn because the law was broken by us. Josiah celebrated the Passover, but Jesus is the Passover. Josiah's life ended, followed by Jehoiakim. Jesus' life, he doesn't have a period after his death and burial. He has an exclamation point a little bit later because he rose again from the dead. You see, Josiah reigned for a short season because of physical descent. Jesus reigns right now because of the power, the writer of Hebrews says, with an undestructible life. He reigns by the power of an indestructible life. See, in the new covenant, Jesus not only calls us outwardly to obey, and that's what I've been doing. He's been using me and he uses whoever's preaching to call people to obey outwardly. In the new covenant, Jesus also calls his people inwardly to obey, to trust and obey by the Spirit. Because the the reality is, the same Spirit that inspired this book that Lloyd-Jones talked about is the same spirit that comes to indwell each and every person when they authentically trust Christ. In other words, the author of this book lives inside the followers of Jesus. And that's why you can tell whether a person has really confessed Christ in a real way of what they think about this book. Not that you don't struggle, not that you don't have doubts, not that you say, well, that's hard to read, but you just don't leave it at that. You press into it because the author lives inside of you. And so I really believe that what I have been calling us externally or outwardly to this morning, getting back to the book, is what the Holy Spirit inside you is only amening and testifying, saying, yeah, that's what we all need to do. That's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. You need to be revived by getting back to the book. Get back to the book. If we would see revival, that is a non-negotiable prerequisite for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I really want to see that in us and in this neighborhood, don't you?